8, at the first half of chapter 8, at this famous parable of Jesus, the parable of the sower. And, uh, you know, it was, it's intense. Jesus is calling us to hear and obey and to, to do that cultivating work in our own lives to be able to receive the word. And, and I tried to get just a couple simple points across um, so maybe this will be clearer than that was. One, we are made for the fruitful life. We're made for the fruitful life. And two, the only way to live the fruitful life is by dogged, clinging obedience to the word of God, which is Jesus and the things that Jesus says. That's the only way to live a fruitful life. So what would make us want to cling with that, that sort of, long-suffering endurance? What would make us want to obey? Some of the commands of Jesus are hard. They're going to get harder. In Luke, he's going to talk about denying ourselves every day. They're hard. What would make us want to do this with steadfast endurance in which we constantly fight to hear his word and do it? The simple answer is he would. To help us see the worthiness of Jesus, Luke takes us on a tour for the rest of chapter 8. We get a boat tour. We set out to sea. And as we go there and back again with Jesus, I hope we find ourselves amongst the crowds gawking. Who is this? Who is this one who has come to us? So, Let's listen to Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 22. I'm going to read through to the end of the chapter. It's a number of stories. It's a bit long, but my goodness, just consider the one that we are talking about here. One day, Jesus got into a boat with his disciples and said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. Now, a violent windstorm came down to the lake, and the boat started filling up with water, and they were in danger. They came and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're about to die. So he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. They died down, and it was calm. Then he said to them, Where is your faith? But they were afraid and amazed, saying to one another, who then is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. And so they sailed over to the region of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. As Jesus stepped ashore, a certain man from the town met him who was possessed by demons. For a long time, this man had worn no clothes and had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and shouted with a loud voice, Leave me alone, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had started commanding the evil spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times. So he would be bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, but he would break the restraints and be driven by the demon into deserted places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? He said, Legion because many demons had entered him. And they began to beg him not to order them to depart into the abyss. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and the demonic spirits begged Jesus to let them go into them. He gave them permission. 
So the demons came out of the man and went into the pigs, and the herd of pigs rushed down the steep slope into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran off and spread the news in the town and countryside. So the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus. They found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told uh, them how the man who had been demon-possessed had been healed. Then all the people of the Gerasenes in the surrounding region asked Jesus to leave them alone, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare what God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole town what Jesus had done for him. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him because they were all waiting for him. Then a man named Jairus, who was a leader from the synagogue, came up. Falling at Jesus' feet, he pleaded with him to come to his house because he had an only daughter about 12 years old, and she was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds pressed around him. Now a woman was there who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years but could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak, and at once the bleeding stopped. When Jesus asked, who was it who touched me? Uh, sorry, then Jesus asked, who was it who touched me? And when they all denied it, Peter said, uh, Master, the crowds are surrounding you and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I know that power has gone out from me. When the woman saw that she could not escape notice, she came trembling and fell down before him. In the presence of all the people, she explained why she touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the synagogue leader's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher any longer. But when Jesus heard this, he told him, do not be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. Now when he came to the house, Jesus did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Now, they were all wailing and mourning for her, but he said, stop your weeping. She is not dead, but asleep. And they began making fun of him because they knew that she was dead. But Jesus gently took her by the hand and said, Child, get up. Her spirit returned, and she got up immediately. Then he told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them to tell no one what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. In this, Lord, in this moment of silence, um, Speak to us about these stories. Make them real before us. Father, as I prepare to preach this passage, 
uh, I'm just keenly aware of the fact that I and people like me spend a lot of time trying to explain this stuff, trying to explain the theological implications of a legion of demons or of, or of a, a storm at sea or, or the power, the feeling power, go out, all of those things. And Lord, um, let us just be in awe of you. You are God and we are not. We worship you and we ask for the same peace that echoes through these stories to echo through this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I love these stories. I'm grateful that they're all together and they're all beautifully connected together. Um, and to set the scene for all of these stories, like we go out to sea. We go out on the sea, and Jesus goes to sleep, and a storm comes. And it is a, a remarkable scene. You know, of course, these are fishermen. They're experienced with boats, uh, at least some of them. And, uh, and they think they're going to die. I mean, they're overwhelmed. Um, this, this happened. This scene really happened. It is a literal story. I don't think it's metaphorical or I don't think it's a, a myth. And yet it is also a literary masterpiece, this story. The reason I say that is if you go throughout the Bible, you will find the, the raging sea as this incredible symbol of death and chaos and nothingness. It is when the ancients closed their eyes and pictured nothingness, they didn't picture black, empty space. They pictured raging, chaotic waters because it's out of the waters that God creates. In fact, this scene, this story, the reason they ask, who is this? Is because this guy just spoke to a raging sea and it went calm. The last time that happened, well, the first time that happened, not the last time, was on the first page of your Bible. Genesis 1, verse 2. The darkness was over the watery deep. And God says, let there be light. I mean, that is how it all starts. God brings order to the chaotic waters to start creation and here this guy who's taking a nap in the boat is doing the same thing. I mean, it's probably also bringing their minds back to the more recent time that it happened when a disobedient prophet named Jonah gets in a boat and goes the wrong way and he's sleeping in the boat, the prophet, and the sailors think they're going to die and he gets up and he knows, yeah, it's, it's me, it's my fault. Throw me overboard, throw me into the chaos. And he's thrown in and the sea goes calm. Luke maybe knows a story that he's going to write about in the book of Acts. When the apostle Paul goes out on the sea and a storm overtakes them and they have a shipwreck. But it leads to a remarkable witness to Jesus where they are marooned. It's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible 
scene. It, it would draw their minds back to when the people were so rebellious and God allowed the chaotic waters to flood the earth again in the days of Noah. It connects all over. It may draw their minds back to the parting of the Red Sea. There's so many scenes that this connects to. After Jesus rebukes the wind of the waves and they stop, the next thing that happens is he turns to his guys and says, where's your faith? What is he asking there? I mean, they thought they were going to die. They're freaked out. They panicked. And they, you know, at least they woke him up. Where's your faith? You know, I used to think, you know, maybe, maybe he's like thinking that they should have commanded the sea. Like, haven't you been watching what I'm doing? But I don't necessarily think that's what's going on. When I look at this, I notice that they don't actually ask him any questions. They just, they just panic and tell him, hey, we're all going to die. You're going down with us. We're going to die. I wonder if that's why he asks, where is your faith? That in their time of need, I mean, they did cry out, but they didn't think there was anything that could be done. The creator who spoke over the waters on Genesis 1, verse 2, speaks again, peace. And it goes calm. And so they land on the other side of the boat, and they're met by this guy. A man whose very life has become infested with demons comes screaming. And what does he do? He falls at Jesus' feet. That's interesting to me. I mean, the demons don't want anything to do with Jesus, but the man has not lost himself completely. Here is the one, like, all, just beg for help. Here is the one. He's longing for Jesus. And, and after he's healed, he's still at Jesus' feet, sitting, clothed in his right mind. What is his state after he's healed? Before it was chaos. After Jesus rebukes the demons, and, and I can't really explain the massive economic loss of the, all of these, this herd of pigs. And, you know, I mean, that, like, and why that might be the reason the townspeople are like, you got to get out of here, man. Like, our economy just tanked because of this deal. You know, I, all the commentators say, we don't know what to say about the moral gray area of the pig, the loss of the pig. Like, well, okay. Um, you know, but there's this chaotic scene and then the man has peace afterwards. And that's what scares the townspeople. Just like the peace on the water is what scares the disciples. Their, their fear shifted from fear of death to fear of this guy in the boat with them. Next, we're taken and we hear a leader of the synagogue. So they go back across. It probably means they've gone back to Capernaum. And there, there's this guy named Jairus. He's the leader of the synagogue. And the first thing that he does, he falls at Jesus' feet. He falls at Jesus' feet. Again, interesting. Um, who is this guy, Jairus? 
You know, this synagogue has been part of our story a couple times. Let me, let me remind you, uh, early on, Jesus is in Capernaum, and a centurion has a servant who's dying. And so the centurion, who's spent a lot of money to build this very synagogue, sends the leaders of the synagogue to Jesus to ask that Jesus, who they think is sketchy, would heal the servant of the Roman soldier who, you know, they have a complicated relationship with. They like him because he's contributed to their stuff, but he's still a Roman soldier. Like, and, and they had to go begrudgingly to Jesus, presumably. I'm, I'm filling in some details here. And, and hmm, here is another leader of the synagogue. Capernaum is a small town, guys. I walked in it in March. It's tiny. It, like, you can get from one end of Capernaum to the other in about three minutes. <laughs> All right? It's just a little village. Everybody knows each other. Jairus has been around for all this stuff. I mean, this is, this is a guy who was there before the centurion's deal when Jesus comes in and has the gall to heal the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. Jairus has complicated feelings about Jesus. But when his 12-year-old daughter, 12 short years, when she's dying, Jairus has no, no, nowhere else to go. Like the, like the demonized man, he comes desperate, falls at Jesus' feet. Jesus' power and authority, it, it had agitated him and stayed with him until this moment, and he's desperate. Before Jesus can arrive at Jairus' house, his daughter's heart will stop beating, and she'll begin to go cold. But on the way, squeezing through a crowded city square, this woman quietly sneaks up behind him. She has to sneak up behind him. You know why? She's ritually unclean. She has been in this perpetual sort of never-ending menstrual cycle where she has a hemorrhage and the bleeding won't stop and it renders her ritually unclean. She cannot touch anyone, certainly not a holy man, certainly not a rabbi or a teacher. And 12 long years she's been waiting with no hope in sight. But reaching through the crowds, she just touches him on the back of his cloak. She just touches him and then tries to sneak away. She doesn't want to make a scene, nothing. But Jesus, he won't let it go. <laughs> Peter tries to get him to let it go. He won't let it go. He felt power go out of him. I don't know what that felt like, what that means. Other times, Jesus is, you know, about to give the sermon on the plane, and they come, and power is going out of him and healing them all. There's something going on with power and Jesus. But anyway, he felt it. He, he, he calls her out, and she realizes somehow she can't sneak away. And what does she do? She falls at his feet. She falls at his feet. She publicly explains herself. Luke doesn't give us her words. He doesn't let us hear her voice directly. But she's already healed. Something more is available to her. 
she falls at Jesus' feet, this woman who has been ostracized for 12 years, and Jesus' first word to her is daughter. Do you remember in the last story, this is the end of last week, you know, Jesus is explaining the parable of the sower. It's rough. His mom and brothers are outside, and they want, they, they want Jesus to come out. You know, the Gospel of Mark says they're embarrassed about him. You know, we don't, we don't know exactly what's going on, but Jesus says, my mother and brothers. No, no, no. My mother and brothers, my family, are those who hear the word of God and do it. So what does it mean to hear the word of God and do it? Well, look at her. Because she is daughter. She is adopted and accepted and welcomed. She is daughter. It's the first time Jesus calls someone something like that in the Gospel of Luke. Daughter. Remember at Jairus' house, it's already too late. Some people come and say, hey, don't bother. Um, she's dead. It's over. We missed it. Jesus won't have it. <laughs> uh, you know, um, I saw a, a, on a, like, you know, a funny, like, uh, sign for a restaurant, uh, you know, that said, like, never in the history of the world has someone calmed down because someone else said to them, calm down, <laughs> you know. But that's what Jesus says. Don't be afraid. Just believe. I mean, like, the guys thought death was going to come on them. They were afraid. The, the people saw Jesus' power over the demons. They were afraid. But now death has really come. And the word used for Jairus' daughter is his only begotten daughter. It's the same word as John 3.16, describing the father and the son. I mean, this is his hope. This is his future. This is his life, his beloved. She's 12. She's about, in, in Jewish terms, she's about to become a woman. She's at the end of her childhood. 12 short years. Interesting how time changes. It's 12 long years for the woman, isn't it? 12 short ones for her. All she had. Before any miracle is performed, Jesus stands in the middle of this morning wailing crowd, he's just brought a few people with him and he calms the storm. Stop your weeping. Stop your weeping. I mean, remember Jesus says, blessed are you who are weep, who weep for you will rejoice. Stop your weeping, he says to them. Even in their agony, they can't help but laugh because he says she's sleeping and they know these aren't like ancient, you know, don't think of like whatever we do with our modern pride where we think we understand the body and science better, you know. They know she's dead and they laugh. But just watch him. She's fallen into death, but he sits down and takes her by the hand. I, I, it doesn't say whispers, but he, he whispers. I don't know. Mike thinks he whispers. I mean, he speaks into death. Guys, I know I'm just retelling these stories, but they are, they are enough on their own. The word of God stilling the storm, 
the word of God defeating demons, the word of God cleansing the impure, the word of God raising the dead. It is the word of God which brings order to the chaos. How do you hear the word and do it? Well, you fall at Jesus' feet and ask. I'm desperate. I'm desperate. Like I said, Jesus is about to raise the stakes on discipleship. It's going to get harder. He, he will present life with him as something that costs all of us our very lives. He will offer no compromises. There's no halfway. He will turn people away in the next couple of chapters who want to follow him. So what would you trade your life for? Not just a good teacher. Plenty of those. Not a prophet. Probably not even a great leader, a great king. What would you trade your life for? The one who whispers into death and brings out life? The one who restores the outcast? The one who defeats an entire army of demons with a word? I mean, can these stories be believed? Can we just believe them? Are these actual accounts of an actual person who is actually living and active and actually seeks relationship with you right now? That same word of God being spoken to you. That's a version of the most important question you will ever face. I mean, aside from whether or not they're true, I mean, it, it, it stretches us, right? It stretches the normal, the, the, the usual. These are miracles, but they invite, they invite some nagging questions beyond whether or not they are just true because some of you watch Jesus go around and and calm the storm and drive out the demons and restore this woman and raise this girl from the dead and you are waiting for a miracle. You are waiting through a major health or developmental issue. I mean, we have kids in this church who've been in and out of the hospital because of some confusing developmental issues. We have people battling illnesses. We have people battling addictions. You know, we have people facing major financial needs. These stories may be inspiring to you or they may be crushing because you've been waiting and waiting for Jesus to show up like this in your situation. And you've asked. Maybe you've asked half-heartedly because you're protecting yourself from disappointment. I, that, that makes sense. You know, you expect silence after you ask the question. Maybe you've begged Jesus, you've fallen at his feet, you've pleaded with him. difficulties on my thing here. Okay, it's back. Uh, Siri kept wondering why I was talking so much about Jesus. <laughs> I, I cannot deny that, you know, most of such circumstances in my own experience, things that I've been close to where we have asked have not yielded a dramatic thing like this, an instantaneous miracle like these four today. And 
And that moment when, when you ask and it's silent, if you have read these stories and you're like, I want to believe, it's deeply unsettling, isn't it? It's hard. It's deeply unsettling. Asking is risky. Is God ignoring me? Did I ask wrong? Is there something wrong with this situation? You know, I've known some people for whom this moment was the end of their faith. One friend who watched his dad slowly die and prayed these types of prayers at his bedside. And his dad died. Jesus sometimes says no. The only no we get here in this story is when the man wants to go with Jesus the delivered man. And Jesus says, no, no. He said, probably a Gentile. It would really complicate Jesus' mission. I mean, there's practical reasons. But you know what he does with the guy? He sends him off as the first missionary in the Christian movement. This guy has the honor of that. And he goes throughout the towns and proclaims. But I won't put a Band-Aid on on this question about unanswered prayers and call it the sovereignty of God. Um, You know, God is sovereign. He is good. But I don't want to just put simple theological band-aids on it. When I read the Gospels, I cannot find a single person in need who came to Jesus and was turned away. There's a scene like that in The Chosen, and I'm like, I don't think that that would have happened in the life of Jesus. I don't think Jesus turned anyone who was broken and in need of him away in the Gospels. There wasn't a demonized person who, upon reacting to Jesus, wasn't set free. Jesus did it consistently. Jesus never referred to a bigger plan and walked away from someone. I will say, on the other hand, that the people I know who have pounded on the door of heaven and it has seemed quiet, who have begged and begged and prayed and prayed with all the faith that they can possibly muster and it has stayed quiet and yet they have stayed near to Jesus. Those people, those heroic people who have gone through that, all, all I can say is this, I can just testify that those people have an experience, a faith, a love, a sensitivity to Jesus that simply cannot be achieved otherwise. It can't. These are the ones who know Jesus not merely as healer, but as the man of sorrows who can sympathize with our weaknesses. And they didn't arrive there by numbing their pain or explaining it away theologically. They asked vulnerably and directly. They risked crushing disappointment again and again and again. And even though the healing, the breakthrough, the, the person coming to faith, the whatever didn't, or didn't happen the way they were expecting, they arrived. I've seen people, some of you in this room, arrived where the sea and the garrison man and the baffled room where the girl had died all arrived at this place of peace, peace that truly is beyond explanation. Look, I I also want us to remember that miracles and healings are momentary demonstrations of God's ultimate plan of restoration. The Sea of Galilee, it had more storms after this day. It had more storms. It's come sometimes as storms. In the last 2,000 years, probably a ship has gone down in the Sea of Galilee. All right? 
the, the man may have been freed from demons, but he was not unsusceptible to evil for the rest of his life. The woman's bleeding stopped, but if she had high blood pressure or, or you know, a skin disease or indigestion, those issues presumably continued. And she died of something eventually. The little girl, I hope she lived a long life. We don't get any more of her life. But she died eventually. These are momentary demonstrations. They're previews that leave us wanting more. A few weeks ago, Addison and I got to hear the testimony of a couple people down at Open Door Ministries who live with disabilities. And, um, and the man, his name is Randy. Is that right? Randy? Yeah. Anyway, I think it's Randy. He has uh, cerebral palsy, and he, you know, is in a wheelchair, and he's now an elder at the church down there. He's a remarkable man, and he just kind of talked to us, just told us. And he described, you know, the, the two types of healings, uh, and I love this breakdown. He calls them small H healings and, and capital H healings. The small H healing is that momentary sign of God's love, his grace. It's calming the storm. It's, it's stopping the bleeding. That's the small H healing. If Randy was able suddenly to be freed of his palsy and get up from his chair and walk around, that would be a small H healing. He said that to us. It'd be wild, but it'd be small H. The big H healing is what we experience in the new heavens and the new earth. What What is previewed to us through these things will be ours in full that day when we will see him with unfiltered eyes and we will fall at his feet like all of these people guys the normal course of life is not a story of health and freedom even the average healthy person who lives a, a long time starts and finishes their lives dependent on others dependent on others I heard someone say recently, you know, there's, there's not, um, you know, disabled and abled. There's temporarily abled. That's it. Temporarily abled. Most of you are in that state right now. Temporarily abled. And in those moments of desperation, those moments of weakness, God shows off in all sorts of ways. You know, we're, we're in the process. We've We've said goodbye to Bob Baker. We love him. We miss him. Uh, a few weeks before he died, I, I was sitting with him and his son in the cafeteria. Bob was in this state of recovery from all sorts of infections and just couldn't get a, couldn't get a fork to his mouth. And so I watched as his son Terry just lovingly, tenderly, Dad, do you want another bite? And kept feeding his dad. I mean, the man, he's feeding the man who fed him like that as a baby. That's the family we get to be a part of. Both Bob and Terry have been miraculously healed from cancer years ago. They have amazing stories about that. These healings are lovely previews, but they're temporary. The point, the point of all of them is Jesus his person, his identity, his character. We look at him. He calms the waters. He defeats the demons. He restores the diseased. He drives death away with a whisper. And you're not beyond his compassion. I mean, what great examples. Freaked out disciples, a, a, a 
a Gentile, demonized guy living amongst the, the tombs, a woman who's completely unclean, the daughter of a, of a synagogue leader. I mean, that's the whole, again, that's the whole spectrum of, of Capernaum society right there. That's everyone. Luke takes us all over the map. And the news of the kingdom is an announcement of a king who prioritizes the poor, the outcast, the overlooked. Yeah, he said no to the man's request, only to send him as a missionary. So if you want to apply this, bring your desperate needs to Jesus. That's the application. Ask him directly. Friends, we trust the sovereignty of God. We trust his big plan. Jesus said, but not what I will, what you will. He did say that. But I want to imitate these people going to him saying, I need your help in this moment. Can we wrestle with that? I mean, I love that these disciples come to Jesus the way my kids will come to me. Can we wrestle? Can we get a Slurpee? Can we have another dessert? Like th things, a lot of the times they could probably guess what my answer is going to be. So I could be grumpy or we have already had a dessert or I'm busy or whatever. And yet they come to me and there's no like, yet not what you will. Not what we will, but what you will, you know. Just ask. Let's treat him like a good father. The gospel of the kingdom is good news to the poor, so bring your poverty to him and see what he does. You guys, when Jesus defeats death at the end of this chapter, that's the climactic moment. He whispers a death. When he defeats death and the girl is raised, which is another small h symbol of the big H healing that we have, you know what Jesus says? He says, let's feast. Let's party. Give her something to eat. And so, like him, we will feast today. We will hear the words of the one who raises the dead and calms the storm, brings peace when we fall at his feet. And we will feast today. This is him coming to you. The way he crossed the sea. The way he came to Jairus' house. The way he called out the woman. He comes to you in your situation right here. Would you have him? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for how good and big you are and wonderful you are. We love you. We, we love you, Lord. And, and, and Lord, only with this stuff can we see why hearing and obeying over the long haul is worth it. Because this is who you are. And at the very least, Lord, let us hear and obey such that we fall at your feet, desperate for you. In Jesus' name, amen.